business, we have the biotechnology business as well. So we call those our base business technology platforms, and we spend a lot of time and money on growing and delivering or trying to deliver those platforms. We uh, took the right the three platforms and called them out as our primary growth platforms a few years ago, because every scientist has a lot of ideas, but sometimes it helps them to focus a bit. We made an acquisition up the road in, uh, in San Francisco of the Climate Corporation about two years ago. And that was a uh, software company that was founded on um, weather analysis and giving farmers uh, solutions on their iPads, solutions on their uh, iPhones uh, that will help them make better decisions uh, to increase profitability on the farm. So when people ask me, why did we get into Precision Ag? It, it's a very underlying piece of it. It's, for those of you that are, are geneticists, you know that breeding and plant breeding is one gigantic statistics game. As we got into uh, genotyping, then that's one even more gigantic statistics game. Well, what the climate work did with weather and other advice is a gigantic statistics and data science game. Uh, so what we did is we put together the platform on data science and climate with our expertise on the biology side uh, of the statistics. And that's really a huge focus for the company on what we call precision agriculture, helping growers make better decisions to increase profitability on the farm. The next uh, giant growth platform for Montana was microbials, and that's BioAg Alliance with, uh, with Novozyme, so that's uh, number five. We'll talk more about that. And then I mentioned uh, BioDirect, uh, the RNA technology. So that's really what we're focused on. We have a number of other platforms that go to the big sticks. Now, when we look to the outside world and we search for innovation, you know, what we're out there looking for is you know, around the right-hand uh, diagram. So anywhere from nucleic acid delivery technologies for RNA to precision ag, water and soil management, soil sensing, soil uh, chemistry, uh, business models on the software side, leading biotech trades, new crop opportunities, uh, chemistry, and I've got a couple examples of that, biologicals, of course, uh, remote sensing, imagery, robotics. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but the main theme being there's more innovation happening in agriculture right now than ever before. And uh, if you're on top of it, it's a good thing. If you're behind, it's bad thing. So, you know, the answer is to try to stay on top of it, and that's what our team uh, works to do. And this is just a couple of... Uh, uh, points to make on the uh, level of investment uh, in the venture capital side of, of agriculture as a place. You see really an unprecedented growth in the amount of money going into uh, agriculture and food. And this is a bit beyond just a pure input act. It goes all the way up to value chain for food uh, as well. But over a billion dollars in 2014. And that would be one point for the slide. Now, another point for the slide is that there is a lot of new players coming into the game. So folks that never thought about agriculture before, you, know, you see uh, you know, GE Ventures, Formation Aid, uh, Innovation Endeavors, folks that you know, have not seen ag as an investment opportunity or seeing it as an investment opportunity now. I think you know, if you visit uh, friends uh, down the road in Silicon Valley, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of technology I believe they never really understood to be applied to agriculture. So whether it's robotics or you know automated uh, herbicide spraying or lettuce thinning, like 
dollars on climate probably accelerated that, uh, but it was happening before that uh, acquisition in uh, 2013. So more money going into innovation and ag than before, and a lot of new players spending money to try to uh, spur that innovation along. Now, when we uh, analyze our venture capital team's uh, work over the last year, we looked at about uh, 300 deals, mainly focused in the U.S. Uh, uh, last year. And, you know, like the venture capital team, and I, and I saw some folks uh, here, uh, you know, you're always trying to decide how much time to spend on any particular uh, deal, any particular opportunity. You know, how can you make a decision without wasting a lot of time? And we got through with a pretty small team, 300 opportunities. You know, uh, one point on this slide, though, to build on what I said on the last slide, is a full, you know, 43 or so percent of the uh, ag investments were in the water and soil precision agriculture period. So that's where a lot of those uh, uh, investments are. Uh, you see biotech and breeding. You see some in biologicals. We're looking at a number of those in our bioag lines field team. There are some coming up. Probably not as much as you see here on the precision activities, but still a lot going on. And again, on the precision ag, shown on that right or left-hand side, are some of the kind of technologies that are being you know, unleashed for agriculture that, that we're looking at. So a lot of deals, a big focus on precision ag, but I think a growing uh, focus on areas such as uh, biological uh, chemistry as well. And when we prioritize what we invest in, you know, we had to, I had to raise my right hand to our board and say we're, we're investing to bring technology into Monsanto for our pipeline. It's not just investing for a profit. Uh, a profit isn't a bad thing, but the main thing is to not lose money but to bring technology and business opportunities into the company. And we filter that by this framework shown here, which is we bought climate, we spent a lot of time thinking about all the decisions that a farmer makes in a year and how we could digitize that decision process and then we group those decisions in these new categories now. So whether it's seed, whether it's soil fertility, which is for the fertilizer piece, really does for sustainability for reduced uh, nitrogen runoff, for instance, crop protection, chemistry, uh, uh, basically the uh, labor and operations, which lot about automation, robotics, and equipment and data systems. Those are our main focus areas, so we're not looking at the land management, we're not looking very much at financial management and not at the great marketing. So we filter all these opportunities by uh, our focus and our focus areas. Now, so I was mentioning to somebody uh, uh, earlier, you know, based on my background in R&D, I kind of like to put everything in a phased approach and a process where we look at progress. And so, you know, these are the deals that we've invested in recently that are public, and we wanted to acknowledge the fact that technology, you know, has a certain maturity level. It's very early technology, and then it gets more mature, and, and, and you can do more with it. And so, we kind of have a very early, usually seed investments, uh, as proven in modern days, the grow and test, and we're co-investors with Novozymes with AgBiome. They've got more uh, maturity on that technology than my co builds and their gene discovery. Uh, development partner, we have a couple of, uh, of uh, collaborations right there. And then not yet to the point of commercializing products from these venture capital investments. And we've been really, probably more active in the last 
things that we're doing then is for our venture capital and our technology teams, we're putting specific internal goals on what our internal teams must be measured on to try to deliver the value for the company of these investments. So it's really about engaging with the company, uh, making them successful, making us successful, so we can progress in technology you know, with all of the advice we can give and help and support we can give to, uh, to make the company a success. We also do some fund investments, and that's mainly to get into uh, what, what the VCs would call the, you know, the innovation ecosystem. So if you're not in the VC network, you don't know what you're missing. There's all kinds of informal stuff that goes on companies starting, professors doing this, that, and the other. So being part of the network is crucial, and our fund investments kind of allow us to get into that network. For instance, working with Atlas Venture and Cambridge and then uh, very important for what we've been doing in the RNA space since they started on Milam and Mirajin and a couple of companies like that. But we do do some select fund investments. I, I would make a point on the um, on this development partner. Those three deals, Ceres and Proteva, are on uh, RNA delivery to plants and insects, and Nimbus is a fungicide discovery effort. These have been set up in what I would call structured buyouts. In other words, with the technology folks, with the business folks, with the other companies, we set out the goals and the milestones of the technology progressions that are predetermined before you even start the company. So everybody is 100% aligned on what we're trying to do. And another point with Nimbus is that's a pharmaceutical computational chemistry company that just happened to be working on an enzyme, ACCAs for a pharma target happens to be a great fungicide uh, target, so it was a win-win. Traditionally, we've got a lot of technology out of pharma because there's so much more investment in pharma technology than, uh, than in agriculture, even with the increase in investments uh, in that. No, in our company, a lot of different teams contribute to potential collaborations, as I'm sure is the case in no designs, and I was talking to Thomas this morning, is that even though we do a lot of collaborations, you always run into folks that, that you know think they can do it all. You know, that, you know, why do I need to collaborate? And so typically, what I say is, you know, it's 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 just the law of large numbers. So in general, it's usually true that no matter how big your team is, there's more more smart people outside your team than there are inside your team. Now there are some there's some exceptions to that, but in general. You know, that's true. So usually when you get the, the scientists with that, you make do the literature surveys of where all the top innovation is going in. You know, even for those uh, tough-to-sell collaboration folks, they'll usually, you know, uh, admit that it probably would be a good idea to, uh, to, to look outside to see if you can get those kind of collaborations that'll make a difference for both parties. You don't get deep of what I'm talking about. It's got to be a win-win. But it does take a lot of work. Now, you know, not to give any kind of, uh, of uh, deep look on uh, on field structures, but you know, a couple of points that, that I that I want to make is is that when you're looking for external collaborations, there is a lot of flexibility uh, in the field structures that we can put together. So it you know goes all the way from you know building yourself as consultants to just flying. So. You know, the, the number one point is there's a lot 
lot of flexibility in deal structures, and what you need to do is find that structure that meets the company's needs as well as the partner's needs and try to find that win-win. You know, another point would be for a company like us in Monsanto, a lot of times this comes down to a bill versus buy decision. You know, how long would it take me to build the Novo from scratch, a new science team, a new this, that, or the other, versus just go and buy it? So speed is really important. So a lot of times it comes down you know, to build versus buy. And of course, the economics come into it as well. But I, I draw your attention to this center spot uh, called uh, Alive or Alliances. And that's where we're spending a lot of time, and that's where our BioLab Alliance comes in. And, and in this case, there's a sharing of expertise, there's a sharing of risk and reward, and there's really, you know, you set it up right, it is a, it is a situation where both partners are 100% committed to delivering on a really compelling vision for the future. So uh, I'm not going to say that these are always easy to run. There's a lot of complexity, as we know, because you have, you know, different decision processes and two different companies where you've got to put them together. And, and I don't underestimate, you know, how much work it takes for the teams to deliver. But if you can get it right, it's really powerful. And I would say that the alliance between Monsanto and Nova Science is kind of on this uh, shared risk, uh, medium to long term, no new entity uh, type of, uh, of alliance in the middle there. So the main point is there's a lot of different flexibility if you're finding a, a collaborator out there. You know, it just depends on what makes sense for the business uh, and what makes sense for the collaborator. And without going into it, you know, over probably the last 15 years that I've been doing a lot of uh, the deal technology, we've really got, uh, we've, we've got examples of all of these different kinds of, uh, all of these different kinds of structures. So, so let me go into a, a couple of, this is, I'm not sure this is the Monsanto's view versus Steve's view of a couple of soft sides of, uh, you know, of alliance partners and what, what has worked for us and what you gotta watch out. I think, so if you start on the on the lower right, you know, visions and values is absolutely crucial. And so, you know, there is just no doubt uh, you know, listening to the Nova Science executives talk, listening to Monsanto executives talk, thinking about you know uh, the culture of the companies and the priorities. That there is a real alignment of vision and values. And you just wouldn't believe how crucial that is because if that's not there, you're, you're just not going to get together. I think the trust and transparency piece, you know, this takes time to build. Uh, you know, and, and you've got to earn it. You know, so on each side of the collaboration, you've got to earn that trust. You've got to be, you've got to be transparent. And I think that, you know, I'll put a little a deal term on there that a deal IP structure is really important. So if you set up a deal where you actually can't talk enough scientist to scientist, that you can really be creative. And the innovation that I've seen. Lower trajectory. So the trick is, how can you figure out what that field is so that you can have that trust and transparency? We spend a lot of time on that. And then on the left, you know, what I would call is work style and focus, just to make sure on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, uh, you have commonalities. You might be in different time zones, but at the end of the day, you know, you've got that uh, you know, drive for getting work. You know, one other point that, that I would bring up that's, uh, that's crucial and uh, is a little cartoon here is what sandbox are we playing in? And so that's kind of a, a nod to make sure that your strategy is set and clear between the two collaborators. 
So is the field of collaboration crystal clear? Do you absolutely know what you're out to get? Uh, now is the strategy clear? How are we going to get there? Do the agreement terms let the parties truly collaborate? That's what I was talking about on the last slide. Who is the competition? You know, that is an absolutely critical piece because you know, when we get into decision processes, when you're competing against single companies, and you've got an alliance there, you just gotta keep your eye on the fact of how fast the competition is going and what we need to do to beat them. You know, the sustainable competitive advantages you know, that we're developing, we talked about the bioinformatics and how we're bringing together the whole genome sequences. What are we gonna do with that? What is the long-term view? You know, maybe we can get down, instead of 2,000 microbes out of the field, we can get down to 500 or something, but with a higher likelihood of success. That's around the bioinformatics getting the data science up on cue. And then finally is, you know, are we playing to win? So, you know, I think most of our companies, you know, we're pretty, uh, pretty focused on, on doing well, not only on the technology, but on the financial performance. So, so these, are, these are some softer side things just to say, is your strategy locked down? Uh, this is pretty self-evident on the, uh, you know, partner selection. You know, I think that from the Monsanto side, uh, you know, we're deep in the plant piece. Uh, we've done microbial genomics over the years for gene discoveries for BTs, but, but we are a microbiology company, certainly not a communication company, and didn't have a business in BioLag. So that when we were looking for a partner, you know, you wanted to find a company that had all the things on the prior slide, technologically, had the microbiology, had the fermentation, had the Really, uh, you know, as we look at it, this is a slide from some business school class. You know that, that uh, basically uh, the BioLab Alliance and Novazon's partner, uh, you know, punched all of, uh, punched all of those buttons for sure. Now, I couldn't I couldn't resist putting in this slide. So up there is me, and up there on the right is Christian Bjornbo, a Novazon's negotiator. And so if I had to say uh, how I spent my 2013, it was in a lot of rooms with Christian and on trying to get contract negotiations, you know, uh, absolutely in the right way so that it was uh, uh, acceptable to uh, both of our companies and both of our boards, but also allow the scientists to uh, deliver the innovation that we need from them. So we, we got that contract negotiations under our belt. We uh, announced the deal in December of 2013, closed it in February of 2014, and for about the last year and a half, we've been Heavy duty in the alliance up in the alliance operations scheme of things. So uh, it is um, uh, it was kind of standard for the business school slide, but you know when you're living in it, uh, especially in the contract negotiation, there can be uh, ups and downs. But uh, but we got it done. Now let me let me uh, give you a little bit you know from, from our view. And some of these slides were from the uh, Novozymes Capital Markets Day. That maybe I'm sure some of you saw. And that's or so percent of that 
in the microbial pesticides and inoculants area. So it's a, it's a pretty good sized industry, but it's highly fragmented. And, and that poses you know, challenges but opportunities as well. Uh, when you look at how the uh, market shapes out, clearly the, the biggest uh, dominant market is in fruits and veggies. And that's something that we and, and the board of BioAlliance talk about a lot because we have a few products in the biocontrol and fruit and veggies, uh, but we don't have a whole portfolio. We're going after the, you know, robots, large acreage, seed treatment as a primary priority. But the strategy work that we really have to get done is to take a stand on the fruit and veggies. So it's kind of a, you know, you need a distribution channel, a market strategy, you need research, but when you invest in that research, so this is getting a lot of uh, uh, a lot of attention. But we've said all along that that's going to be the second phase of the strategy after we really nail uh, the science around the seed treatment and get that pipeline running. You know, one of the um, you know, points on the bottom, and this was really highlighted, uh, was it last week in Saskatoon? So I was up at the Nozons manufacturing site, and we were have some market expansion work going on there. And the point is that uh, there is a lot of desire to convince with sustainability to uh, help growers do a better job of managing fertility, which is fertilizer use, not uh, too much fertilizer, the right amount of fertilizer. So when you take Results we have, for instance, the Jumpstart product from Novozymes, which increases phosphate uptake. But then the question that came up, how much more work on the R&D side should we be doing in terms of the uh, fertility or fertilizer substitution? There is a ton of value uh, in fertilizer. We just got you know, a little bit of that $200 billion. You know, that, that, that would be nice. You know, the top side would be the pesticide part, and that gets into the biocontrol strategy. So the crop protection industry in ag is about $50 billion. So if we came up with a handful of microbes that could help us uh, bring some of that value to bioacclients, that would be that would be a good thing too. But the main points are uh, it's a pretty big industry, it's growing, it's got a mid-teens growth projected through 2020, uh, kind of fragmented opportunity and challenge, and uh, really thinking a lot about this whole uh, fertility management as well as the microbes. So when you, I think everybody's probably seen how we set this up. It's uh, co-funded and co-managed R&D with Noah's Times taking the responsibility in addition to the discovery piece from their side, the uh, fermentation, mid-scale manufacturing uh, with Monsanto uh, uh, running the field uh, testing regulatory commercialization. And you know, an important point here is that we set this up with in-licensed best material that's out there, again, rewired for collaboration, uh, as well as out-licensed the whole industry. So you know, that was something that we were both in agreement. We wanted to not only you know, give the biggest return on the R&D investment, we wanted to make sure as many farmers that could you know, in the world benefit from the technology we have, and that's why we built the in-licensed and out-licensed. <coughs> I think one of the areas that we're finding is a, a big uh, opportunity for technology development is in this late stage microbial stabilization, chemical compatibility, uh, seed treatment, uh, equipment functioning, and we've got some teams working on that. There's a lot of expertise, no designs in Monsanto on this, but I, I think we've got some room to put this into a, a finely tuned Swiss watch on this later stage product formulation. 
In terms of financial performance, you know, you've probably all heard about the uh, uh, ag environment being really soft this year, so it's been really tough out in agriculture. You look at all the earnings for all the ag companies, so it's been a tough environment. We were soft on the sales on the net revenue. The teams tried hard, very low on the sales. But you know, thanks to the great manufacturing by our Vanderlei and Amazon's manufacturing team, good savings on commercial SGNA, good savings on R&D versus budget. We came in uh, ahead on the gross profit for the alliance as well as ahead on the alliance even. So two out of the three of the financial measures were good in a really tough environment. And there's a lot of work going on for corrective actions on how we work to grow uh, even in this tough environment over the next year probably. We had a couple of, uh, of, of highlights, growing uh, out here at Soy Inoculants and Pulses in Canada, launching a tour, which is your LCO uh, in Ukraine on Monsanto Forms. We've got a number of these uh, real highlights in addition to the operational progress we've made. And our next board meeting is in a couple of weeks in St. Louis, and uh, we'll, we'll get the, the full download on the performance there. Uh, product portfolio, without going into a lot of details, We've got one side, which is the soil health around the nutrient efficiency, which I just talked about, and the nitrogen fixation for the inoculants. With one big inoculant project being uh, a liquid grade rhizobium for Brazil. This is a big deal. There's a lot of opportunity there. We've got a crack the code on that liquid grade project. Um, and then, again, on biocontrol, we've got a couple of biofungicides and bioinsecticides, but not the full portfolio because we're shaking things. So soil health, pest control, and at the end of the day, what Grover wants to see is you know, replacement value for fertilizer biocontrol. It wants to see incremental yield. You know, there's crop insurance, there's convenience, and really it's the overall system that the biological and pretty mature in the U.S. You know, agronomic system. Just to brag on the R&D a little bit, and, and that is, it's an amazing effort that the teams have set up going all the way from strain sourcing to growing up above, to the seed treatment, to the sequencing, to the data analysis, to the advancement. And, you know, I like the little slide, you know, here where you've got the discovery microbes coming in from San Diego and, and parts all over the country and world with those lines, going to Thomas's uh, setup at RTP, which is amazing, where they can come in on micro scale, all these organisms do all these characterizations, and all of those are shipped back to St. Louis where we do the seed treating of thousands of different packets of seeds, and then all those seeds can go through field testing. So logistically, uh, this is quite a feat. Now we've got to have the science results and go with those logistics, but you've got to you know, uh, congratulate the teams for a, a job well done. So very, very nice work getting this thing set up, and it's, uh, it's an amazing process, and again, it's on a scale that hasn't been seen before. As, as we heard earlier, uh, the first full year of field testing, our top lines about a four bushel per acre increase on corn, about two bushels in soy. These are good results. Uh, one of the things though you, uh, you you learn working in agriculture is hanging around with a bunch of plant breeders is you know you can get one result one year, okay what do you get next year? What do you get in different locations? So you've got to get consistency. So we'll have all eyes on our top microbes that showed up in this slide from last year uh, to the field results we're going to get this year. So just to, to close up, you know, when, we, when we did the alliance, we kind of laid out the strategy, just to focus and get the pipeline going for the seed treatments to get the broad acres on one 
NOC footprint, moved into new offerings on food and veggies, uh, uh, biocontrol, new geographies in this midterm. In the long term, I think there's an incredible fit with precision ag and microbials because of the condition of the soil, the amount of nitrate, the amount of fertilizer, the microbial population in the soil. We've got data that shows some of our microbes does better, for instance, on corn on corn crops versus corn on soybean because the soil's been completed in a certain way. And so really connecting uh, the knowledge of the soil with testing of the microbes so that we can have prescriptions to growers to get the most value out of those microbes. That is going to be cool. Now, there's a business side of that because you can't treat all the seeds in the U.S. with one microbe if you're going to get custom solutions. So we've got to work through the business model. Now, maybe there's a base seed treatment, but then there's other application methods to get the precision at. But I'm an absolute believer in this long-term Studies, 
Um, and there's been, this is a plot of PubMed, you know, uh, gifts to the word microbiome, and it keeps going up almost exponentially over time. There's just an incredible rise in studies of microbial communities. I'll talk about what the microbiome is in a few minutes. Um, there's been this big effort um, to characterize the microbes on human. There's a European effort, an NIH effort, a variety of other efforts on the human microbiome. There are microbes and microbiomes in the news all the time, uh, in good and bad ways, and now there's a lot of discussion of how we may either help or hurt our microbiome in a variety of ways. So it's become this incredibly uh, hot topic. Um, if you're interested in what it means, I've actually written a couple of blog posts and articles about this. Basically, the way I view the microbiome is the collection of microbes that live in a particular ecosystem or biome, the total content of that microbial community. Sometimes people use this specifically to refer to the genomes of those organisms. I usually use it to refer to just the collection of organisms um, in a system. <coughs> microbiome studies have gotten the most interest from studies of the cloud of microbes that live in and on people, but as, of course, many of you know, here there's a cloud of microbes that live in just about every ecosystem on the planet or every place on the planet. Many of these are associated with plant and animal hosts, and those do some very interesting things. But there are also microbial communities in the soil, in the water, in the air, and every other place on the planet. And of course, Nova Vines have specialized in making use of some of these microbes for variety systems. Um, but there's microbes everywhere. In general, now people are using this term microbiome to refer to any community of microbes. So one question that I'm sort of really interested in is why does this become so such a hot topic now? What has gotten people so interested in microbiomes? Uh, most recently. And I'm just going to, as an introduction, go through what I think are some of the explanations. <laughs> One of them is this growing appreciation of microbial diversity. So there have been, over the last 30 or 40 years, an increasing number of studies of microbes in various systems shown to be important in the health and function of a particular ecosystem. You know, of course, this started with the discovery of microbes, but there's an incredible diversity of form that has been characterized in microbes and a growing appreciation of this diversity of form. There's an incredible diversity of phylogeny, that is the different types of microbes scattered across the evolutionary tree. And of most interest to people is uh, contained within microbes is an incredible amount of functional diversity. Uh, chemical diversity in particular is what a lot of people have been interested in. And of course, we microbiologists uh, think that microbes run the planet, which is a very important study. Another reason that I think the microbiome has grown in interest is what I call the post-genome move. So as you heard, I worked at Tiger for eight years, sequencing genomes um, indirectly associated with some projects on some of the larger organisms, but mostly worked on microorganisms. And uh, during that time, um, there was a lot of selling of the benefits that would come from sequencing the human genome, or sequencing the plant genome, or sequencing a microbial genome. And, uh, Let's just say some of those benefits did not come into being uh, immediately. So um, there's been lots of articles written about this. Did we oversell the benefits of the human genome? And of course, there are reasons why the genome might not explain everything. This, of course, the gene content only explains what the potential is. Now we have to characterize the transcriptome, and the proteome, and the metabolome to understand what's actually encoded um, from the genome. There's epigenetic tags on organisms where the individual genome sequence is not the only thing that tells you what's going on in the organism. There's something called a variome, which is the variation within individual multicellular organisms. 
There are different genetic content in different parts of an organism. And the microbiome is just sort of in this context, yet another thing that it can explain basically why the genome itself does not explain everything. Another reason for the increased attention to microbiomes is technological advances. And you know, you know about all these in terms of a variety of studies of biology, but for microbes, this has been particularly important for a variety of reasons. And one of the main reasons is that, as I assume most of the people at Novozymes know, if you go to any community in the environment, like this Yellowstone hot spring, and you collect a sample and you split it in two, and you look at the sample in a microscope, and you count the number of microorganisms that you can see there, or you take out a sample and you grow it in the laboratory, and you count how many different things you can grow, what you see is that there's a much greater number of things that you can see in the microscope than things that you can grow in the laboratory in pure culture. And this is generally known as the great plate count anomaly or um, a variety of other acronyms, and it's been a big problem in microbial studies. There are many ways people have tried to deal with this, but in the 1980s, primarily, Norm Pace and colleagues developed an alternative way to study microbes and their communities by going out into the environment and isolating originally RNA from the environment and now DNA from the environment, sequencing the DNA from those environmental samples and using analysis of the DNA to indirectly characterize what microbes were present in that environmental sample. A lot of this work was based upon the work that had been done by Carl Lowe's where he had taken cultured organisms and shown that you could characterize what kind of cultured organism you were looking at by sequencing ribosomal RNA genes from those organisms. So isolate ribosomal RNA originally, and now the DNA that encodes ribosomal RNA, sequence it, line up sequences from different organisms, organisms, compare them to each other in much the same way that you compare the skeletons that are vertebrates, look at the similarities and differences, quantify those similarities and differences, and then build an evolutionary tree that tells you what kind of organism you're looking at compared to other organisms that have been characterized. This is what led Carl Lowe's to discover the third branch in the tree of life, the archaea. And this general concept is basically what Norm Pace and colleagues took and applied to environmental samples and used it to indirectly characterize organisms by sequencing their ribosomal RNA genes and then placing them in the context of known taxa by phylogeny. That's something generally known as phylotyping, which I will come back to. Um, what, what I'm sort of generally referring to as CSI microbiology can be applied to a variety of microbial communities and paths. One thing that people are doing now, which I will come back to, is rather than just sequencing ribosome RNA genes from environmental samples, we can now sequence the entire genomic content from the environmental sample, something generally known as metagenomics apply the same general methods to those metagenomic samples with a little bit of uh, variation that I'll talk about in a while. Um, you can figure out what organisms are in those samples by building evolutionary trees of sequences from those samples. You can also, very importantly, make predictions of the functions of the organisms in those samples by running the same tools that people had developed to characterize the genomes of individual isolates in the laboratory. You can predict differences between communities and try and infer what are the likely explanations for those differences as well. Just as an aside, if you've seen a bit of the press recently, there's a bunch of new papers um, arguing that uh, archaea may not be the third branch of the tree of life, that they may in fact be a subgroup. Uh, sorry, I drew this backwards. That eukaryotes may be a subgroup of archaea. Um, I'm not going to really talk about it in that, in that in detail, but what that has come from has been analyzing <coughs> other than ribosomal RNA genes 
contain the genomes of organisms. And it doesn't always give you exactly the same picture as ribosome RNA, although the picture is frequently very similar. So why have microbiomes gone really crazy? That's because sequencing has gotten cheap and easy and efficient. And uh, as the costs and difficulty of sequencing have gone down, people have applied this to all sorts of organisms. But in particular, microbes have been revolutionized because, again, we can't grow many of them in the environment and we can use the DNA sequencing to characterize their diversity in a variety of ways. Uh, so, sorry, I'll go back to one slide here. So the last reason that I think the microbiome field has gone sort of crazy has been studies of a few microbiomes in particular have shown that they carry very important functions that were probably unappreciated in the past. And in particular, these are the clouds of microbes that live in on plants and animals. So the probably most important study from this was done in Jeff Gordon's lab by Peter Turnbaugh and a few others where they showed that if you take microbes from a genetically defective mouse that is obese with defects in the OB gene, those mice have different microbes in their gut, not that surprising, wouldn't have to have anything directly to do with the obesity, but they have different metabolism. They took those microbes, transplanted them into germ-free wild-type mice, and they got fat. And so this blew people's minds, basically, and led to an enormous increase in the attention paid to microbial communities, because it wasn't just that they could differ between different health states, they could transmit health states to individuals, at least in this mouse system. So um, in this context, um, is where we are in microbiome studies basically now. And what we do in my lab is try and characterize various microbial communities. And this is what I'm, I'm gonna sort of go through in my talk is the challenges and opportunities in this area. So there are many challenges associated with characterizing entire communities of microorganisms. Um, one of this relates to the diversity of microbes. There are estimated now to be um, thousands of different major lineages or phyla of bacteria and archaea. We understand the functions and the diversity of maybe 10 of those. Um, the amount of microbial diversity that is out there in terms of total evolutionary diversity is enormous. There's even diversity within species that is much, that is sort of very different than what we see within plants and animals. So two E. coli strains can differ by 40% of their genome content. So we have all this evolutionary diversity and then even within species, have massive differences within the genetic diversity, and that um, leads to differences within functional diversity, both within and between species and across the tree of life. Another issue of the complexity is that the way we're characterizing communities right now is mostly go to an environment, swab a sample, collect some fecal material, uh, collect some soil, grind it up, and run short-read DNA sequencing technology on that sample and try and infer what's going on in the organisms from uh, thousands to hundreds of thousands to now billions of sequence reads. And that's very challenging to uh, interpret that data. And there's also, of course, as I mentioned before, lots of variation within hosts. That's both due to the microbes and due um, to other features like the variation in transcription, the variation in epigenetics, the variation in um, the environment that individuals see, the variation in the genome content, and so on. So in this context, we're trying to understand the structure and function of microbial communities, especially those that live in and on plants and animals, and it's just a very complicated issue to try and tease apart. 
A second aspect of this complication that I think is uh, really important to think about it relates to public understanding. And this is a big challenge in the area of science in general, but microbiome studies, I think, um, may be exacerbated in some ways related to this. On the one hand, we have lots of people, probably many in this room, that are uh, what you can call germaphobes. That is, they think about microbes in the context of they're going to make you sick, and most of the time they think about how we can filter out, swab, sterilize, kill, destroy, or get rid of the microbes from a particular environment. You know, you have a cold, you go in and take uh, antibiotics, no matter what the cause of it is, we put antimicrobials in our shoes, in our clothing, um, on our kitchen counters, in our filters, in our cars, um, all throughout the planet, we're basically slaughtering microbial diversity. There's antimicrobial compounds in toothpastes, in shampoos, in um, just about everything that we see in the cosmetic world, and it's probably a really stupid idea. Um, but people are afraid of microbes. Um, so that's what happens. Um, on the other hand, we also have this kind of psychotic other side of things, where people, some people are promoting microbes and the microbiomes as though they're going to save the planet um, in every which way but lose. So every possible human ailment has now been ascribed to being caused by problems in the microbial community in the gut, even if there is absolutely no evidence for this. There are clinics throughout the country that offer fecal transplantation for schizophrenia. Fecal transplantation. It's not actually, that's probably not the worst example. Um, <laughs> there, but there are, the, the hype has gone way beyond the science in this area. Um, there's probiotics advertised that apply to different groups. So at the local CVS drugstore, there's a whole shelf of probiotics for kids, for the elderly, for men, for women, for dogs, for cats. For every other possible group, there's uh, probiotics. There's a book out every week now on the microbiome and how it's going to save your life. Um, there's all sorts of weird stuff out there in the blogging world. Uh, and I uh, now give out, an over I give out an overselling the microbiome award on my blog, and I literally cannot keep up with the number of examples. So these two things conflict with each other. I think there's a happy medium in between, so we spend a lot of time in my lab trying to work on this sort of public understanding of microbes and microbiome science in the context of the complexity that I mentioned uh, before. I actually view this now as opportunities. The complexity makes it really interesting to study. The variation within hosts makes it really interesting to study, and this sort of germophobia and microbiomania also makes it a really interesting area to be. So what I'm going to talk about in my talk is a few examples of where I think there are opportunities in studies of microbiomes. And where we're working on this in my lab, and many other people in the community are working on similar things to try and deal with this complexity, to deal with the germophobia, to deal with the microbiomania, and to try and raise the field up to a better understanding of microbes, both from a scientific point of view and from a public point of view. So I'm going to first sort of start easy with one of the first things that people do when they use DNA to characterize a microbial community, which is called phylotyping or phylogenetic typing. Um, and what you basically do is you go to a community, you isolate DNA from a community, you run ribosomal RNA PCR using uh, primers that can amplify virtually any ribosomal RNA gene from that environmental sample. 
you sequence the ribosome RNA genes, and again, you line them up, you compare them to ribosome RNAs from other organisms, and you can place an unknown organism into a phylogenetic context by where it sits on the tree, and then make some predictions about that organism, or at least track that organism in different environments by where it sits in the tree. I actually first started working on this as an undergraduate at Harvard and Colleen Kavanaugh's lab, where I spent a year and a half, uh, including after I graduated, sequencing one ribosomal RNA gene, 1,500 base pairs. Um, I got a paper out of this. Um, and we characterized an uncultured bacterial symbiont that lived inside some clams isolated from coastal sediments in Woods Hole, build evolutionary trees, and predict the biology of these organisms. Now, the great thing about ribosomal RNA PCR is you can go to an environmental sample with more than one organism, get out more than one sequence, and infer what multiple organisms were in the sample. So let's say there are two organisms, you get two different ribosomal RNAs out of the sample, two different uh, ribosomal RNAs in the alignment, and you can show that they show up in two different areas of the tree. You can count the relative abundance of these organisms by the relative number of sequences that you get out of the sample and therefore infer something about the ecology of the sample, not just who is present in the sample. You can do this with four organisms, with a hundred, with a thousand, with ten thousand, and now with, you know, cheap Illumina sequencing, you can do this with communities with hundreds of thousands of different taxons. And continue to use this counting to infer the relative abundance of all the different organisms in the sample. And so we use this method still in my lab to characterize the rocks for an age to get a lot more sequences than the one I got in a year and a half of work. But we characterize communities. You can do a variety of clustering and statistical analyses to compare the entire composition of different communities and see if, for example, communities that are hypersaline have different organisms than communities that are from human microbiome and communities that are from soil and communities that are from other uh, environments. And again, because sequencing has gotten cheap, we can do a lot of this. So I've actually spent a lot of time in my lab, as have many other people in the community, thinking, okay, we're drowning in sequence data. We can't look. So I actually spent a year and a half, I actually hand-aligned the ribosomal RNA sequence from Colin Kavanaugh's lab, built a ribosomal RNA secondary structure based on the E. coli secondary structure, all this by hand, took a year and a half. We can't, of course, do that anymore. We can't even look, really, at the data we have to build automated sequence analysis pipelines to deal with this data. So that's what we've been doing in my lab now for about 10 years, building a variety of tools to analyze ribosomal RNA sequence data in an automated manner. And I'm going to talk in a lot of detail about these tools, but basically every six months we realize we're three years behind the data and try and come up with a new tool to deal with the massive amounts of data that are coming out. We never keep up, um, but we're trying. Um, what I do in my lab is apply sort of an ecological and evolutionary approach to analyzing this data, which is a little bit different than what many people do in the community. So I believe that the history of organisms is really important for understanding their biology and understanding their ecology. So we always use phylogeny as a part of interpreting these sequence data sets. Now, ribosome RNA turns out to not be perfect. Many people have known this for a long time. I'll just give you one example of how it's not perfect. The copy number of ribosome RNA genes varies enormously between taxa. If you want to count ribosome RNA sequences and think you are counting the number of cells in a community, but the number of copies of ribosome RNA varies between taxa, it doesn't actually give you a very good estimate of the relative abundance of organisms. 
So we've developed in collaboration with Steve Kemble and Justin Green a method to use the evolutionary history of organisms and the momentum of copy number of ribosome RNAs that is conserved within particular branches to correct for the copy number variation and get better estimates of relative abundance of organisms in a system. Now, you can do all sorts of things to try and improve your ability to analyze ribosome RNA data, but what we and many other people are starting to do as sequencing has gotten cheaper and cheaper is to just skip ribosome RNA analysis. Go to communities, grind up the entire sample, skip the PCR, and shotgun sequence everything from the sample. And try and use analysis of that metagenomic data to get a better handle on the phylogenetic diversity and the functional diversity from that. So one thing you can do when you do shotgun sequencing from a community is you can analyze genes other than ribosomal RNA and use them to infer information about relative abundance, phylogeny, and taxonomy from the community. Many genes in bacteria do not vary in copy number to the extent that ribosomal RNA does. Many genes actually have more variation among close relatives than ribosomal RNA does. So there are many genes that are in principle better for analyzing communities of organisms in ribosome RNA. The reason everyone focused on ribosome RNA was basically because primers allowed you to focus your sequencing and amplify ribosome RNA genes from the community, but with shotgun sequencing, we get everything. So we can now analyze the phylogenetic and ecological diversity of communities using a variety of other phylogenetic marker genes. We spent a lot of time in my lab developing high-throughput automated methods to analyze ecology of communities based upon protein coding genes, especially single copy universal protein coding genes, and you can assign organisms to their taxonomic group, build phylogenetic trees for organisms, use the same methods you use for ribosome RNA, except now with a bit better resolution and a better estimate of relative abundance for the community. You can also scan through the data and find very strange things that we still can't explain. So one challenge with ribosomal RNA PCR is that the primers don't amplify everything, and not all organisms, well, not all entities have ribosomal RNA genes. So viruses don't have ribosomal RNA genes. If you want to scan through a sample and get a handle on the total diversity of the sample, it might be better to look at other genes, genes other than ribosomal RNA. The latest from my lab is a program, oh, by the way, everything we do is released open source published almost entirely in open access journals. Um, we developed a program with Aaron Darling, who was a postdoc in my lab and is now in Australia, called Phylocept, that is a Bayesian phylogenetic approach to analyzing metagenomic data. Most of the previous methods had used phylogenetic um, inference methods that were kind of a cheat. Methods that were really fast, but weren't the best optimal phylogenetic tree inference methods. This is a new, relatively fast method to use sort of what the phylogenetic community would say is a decent phylogenetic tree method for analyzing communities of organisms. And you can then take these methods and do the same thing you would do with ribosome RNA, but now with protein coding genes, and compare the diversity of communities and the ecology of communities with a better resolution than you get with ribosome RNA. Um, a second aspect of analyzing the diversity of communities that is really important for understanding microbes is to take the sequence data and try and predict the functions that are present in those communities. I spent many years working on methods, this is where the phylogenomics term Andrew was talking about, to do this for cultured organisms when we have the complete genome of an organism. 
Now we're trying to apply this to environmental communities organisms, and I'm just going to show you a tiny bit of this. So basically what I did um, as a graduate student was develop a method that said, if you have an unknown gene from a sample, from an organism, and you want to understand what its function is, what many people were doing at the time, and even today, are taking that sequence and doing a database search with a method like BLAST, where you identify what the most similar sequence is to your sequence of interest, and then you look up what the putative function is of that top match, and you predict the function of your uncharacterized gene from that top match. That turns out to be not the ideal method to use. It's much more useful to build an evolutionary tree of a sequence and all of its homologs, overlay onto the evolutionary tree experimentally determined functions, and predict the function of an uncharacterized gene by where it sits in an evolutionary tree relative to other genes that have been characterized. If I showed that this could work with all sorts of different protein families. We developed automated methods to do this, not very good. Other people develop better automated methods to do this. Um, if this sounds familiar, this is phylotyping. I basically copied ribosomal RNA phylotyping and applied it to protein sequence diversity. So just like you can predict the function of an uncharacterized organism by where it sits in an evolutionary tree, you can predict the function of an uncharacterized gene by where it sits in an evolutionary tree. And you can apply this to environmental communities. We showed this with the original Venter Sargasso C study with proteorhodopsin genes, which are of incredible interest. But any type of gene that you find in an environmental sample, you should be building evolutionary trees of that gene in the homologs if you want to make predictions of the function of that gene. Um, we, uh, in collaboration with Tom Sharkin and Katie Pollard, we now have a high-throughput automated method for doing this from metagenomic data called ShopMap. The paper is actually in review right now, but the software is available on GitHub if anybody's interested in it. And just as a, a quick aside, there's something that we've done a lot in um, genomes that we're still struggling to figure out how to do in metagenomic genomes that I thought I would mention. So if you take an organism, and sequence its genome, you've grown it in the lab, and you want to predict the functions present in the genome. There are lots of tools. Of course, I would argue that the phylogenetic tools are great. But imagine this scenario. You have a gene in the genome. It has homologs in a database. And none of those homologs have been experimentally characterized. It doesn't matter what method you use to select the genes, the top hit, or the evolutionary tree, or rolling dice, or whatever. Um, you're not going to be able to predict the functions of the genes using that type of approach. And so we ran into a scenario sort of like this with the study of this weird thermophile called peroxidothermus hydrogenoformans. Um, produces hydrogen gas as a byproduct of its metabolism and lives on carbon monoxide. And when we sequenced the genome, um, uh, if you scan through the annotation of the genome, we found homologs of sporulation genes in the genome. It's related to sporulating low GC gram-positive species. So this seemed plausible, although we had tried to get it to sporulate. Our colleague, our collaborator, Frank Robb, eventually did get it to form these endospores. That's not what I'm here to tell you about. What I'm here to tell you about is this strange thing that we found, um, which turns out to be really useful, which is we took the genes of the genome, and we found um, homologs of these sporulation genes, but we also found, of course, hundreds of genes that had no predictable function. We called them conserved hypothetical genes. So we took the genome and ran this analysis called phylogenetic profiling, originally developed by Pellegrini and colleagues at UCLA, where you take genes and you group them by their distribution pattern across species. So you look for genes that have shared presence and absence across species. They may have no sequence similarity whatsoever to each other. And we found a list of genes 
in carboxyphothermous hydrogenoform ions that had shared presence and absence across species and were present in sporulating species and not non-sporulating species. And what's really interesting is on this list, many of the genes we can annotate because they have homologs in the characterized organisms like the subtilis, but half of the genes in this cluster had conserved hypothetical annotation, no known function. And what we did is we went to Rich Lozick, who was the world expert on characterizing sporulation genes in Psilocybalus at the time, sent him our list, and he basically went through our list and then made knockouts in Psilocybalus and showed that every single gene on this list that was annotated as a conserved hypothetical protein was involved in sporulation. This is an incredible tool for discovering the function of genes that don't have any sequence similarity to genes of known function. And we use this all the time in characterizing culture of organisms, but we have no good method still to use this for metagenomic communities. There are people who have tried this who think that you can cluster gene presence and absence by community or by environmental variable like pH or salinity and come up with these types of predictions, but as far as I know, there are no sort of good methods to do this from environmental So we go through this community data, we try and identify the organisms by this phylotyping or variety of biogenetic approaches, we try and compare the diversity of communities. We then try and predict the functions present in the community, maybe with phylogenetic methods or some other approach. What we really want to do is link the phylogeny to the function. We want to know which functions are present in which organisms. When we go to a community and we grind it up and then try and infer what's going on in the community, community is not a bag of genes. It is a compartment of organisms that interact with each other genetically and by communication systems, and they're contained within these you know, cells, compartments and things. Um, so what we really want to do is go to these communities and better link the functions that we infer in the community with the taxa and the phylogeny of the organisms and this has been a big struggle in metagenomic studies. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of how um, sort of the latest methods that we're trying to go about doing this. One of them was uh, developed by a graduate student in my lab, Chris Patel, who had been working in a plant genomics lab where they were using this method that um, people have used to look at chromatin structure within eukaryotic cells where you can cross-link DNA within a cell and thereby detect different regions of the genome that are physically close within the cell but distant within the linear sequence of the DNA by cross-linking the DNA and then sequencing the flanks around the crosslink. And he took this method and applied it to a metagenomic community and showed that you could use it to build basically one million base pair linkage maps within an environmental community to link structure and function, and function and phylogeny in particular, within a community. So again, we're getting this mostly tiny, short-read Illumina data, but now we can build scaffolds from this Illumina data of which genes go with which other genes and make better inferences about the community um, by doing this. Another approach to doing this, which people are probably more familiar with, um, many people have worked on. There's a graduate student who was in my lab, Lizzie Wilbanks, who's now a postdoc at Caltech, who was characterizing these pink berry communities, and basically what she used was these relatively new or um, relatively improving methods to sequence long reads from communities. So we use this molecular method, which is developed by a company that was then bought by Illumina, which basically gets you 
synthetic lawn reeds from a community by subcloning large DNA pieces and having a barcode inserted into the same um, different parts of the subclones of a single DNA fragment. And then um, we did random shotgun sequencing from these communities and also did Pacific Biosciences sequencing. And what she was able to show was that by having these long reads, what had been an incredibly messy analysis of the environmental community from the shotgun sequence data um, suddenly became a little more transparent in terms of interpreting the biology of the community. And she was able to show, for example, that there were these proteoredopsin genes, which are these light-mediated proton pumps, that appear to be linked to sulfur metabolism in one of these organisms, which had not been characterized previously. And this only was possible by linkage with these large insert DNA libraries from the environmental sample. I'm not going to tell you about this uh, other method that she used, but she's now at Caltech and Vicky Orphan's lab because Vicky Orphan is one of the people who developed this method called NanoSims, which allows you to scan through a sample with a brass ring on an ion beam, basically vaporize nanometer scale portions of your sample, feed that into a mass spec, and look at the products that come off on a nanometer scale resolution from your environmental sample. And then you can get, compare different parts of your sample with each other and get information about what metabolites or what elements are in those different parts of the sample. And that's how she was able to show which organisms in this community were doing sulfur metabolism or nitrogen metabolism by mapping uh, with this nanosynthesis method. Um, another approach to sort of what I would call better um, methods is to get better reference data for communities. So we're shotgun sequencing these communities. A lot of what we do is compare to what we call reference data, reference genomes or reference protein families, and use those comparisons and knowledge about the thing we're comparing to to make sense of this fragmentary data from a community. So, for example, we need more phylogenetic markers. In our original analysis of phylogenetic markers, we found about 30 genes from across bacterial species that served as good phylogenetic markers. We've been scanning through every major lineage of bacteria, coming up with lists of phylogenetic marker genes that can tell you a lot about the diversity of those particular lineages. So, for example, if you're interested in cyanobacteria in the community, we have about 600 genes from throughout the genome of cyanobacteria that can serve as a good marker for telling you what kind of organism you see in the sample. Reference genomes are really important for doing this work. When I was a tiger, um, I noticed, as did a few other people, that um, most of the genomes that were becoming available from bacteria were from just three phyla bacteria, the low GC gram positives, also known as the firmicutes, the proteobacteria, and the high GC gram positives, also known as the actinobacteria. So we started the first project to try and correct this, funded by the NSF Tree of Life program, where at the time it seemed very dramatic. We were going to sequence eight genomes, um, one representative of each of eight phylobacteria for which they were cultured species and no genomes. When I moved to Davis in 2005 and got this adjunct appointment at the DOE Joint Genome Institute, we started what we call the Genomic Encyclopedia of Bacteria and Archaea, where we've been marching our way through the diversity of bacteria and archaea. Um, filling in the tree, getting genome sequences from any branch that has a cultured representative but no genome sequence starting at the base of the tree and going out so we get the most phylogenetic diversity. Um, we did a lot of analyses that I'm happy to talk to people about uh, later that showed that this was a very beneficial approach 
for improving your ability to annotate genomes, to annotate metagenomes, to discover new functional diversity. Filling in the diversity of genomes from across the tree of life is a very powerful tool. And I'm just going to give you one example of this. There was a study that got a lot of press recently of these hunter-gatherer microbiome studies where people sequenced the microbial community from the guts of uh, some people who have been relatively isolated from the rest of the world. They did shotgun sequencing and then tried to compare the genome, the, the organisms that were in these samples with organisms that were, say, from westernized populations. Um, and there were a couple of studies like this, and one of them they found a really interesting thing, which was this, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's this lineage um, that is all, all the sequences here are present from these hunter-gatherers, but not from any westernized population. And they're related to a species called Treponema succinopaciens, and then another species, Treponema, I can't even read, uh, nor do I remember what it's called, two species of spirochetes that are sequences from this community are, are enriched for spirochetes relative to westernized populations. Now, it turns out, despite millions of dollars spent on sequencing reference genomes for the Human Microbiome Project, that is, organisms that were isolated from humans, that we had cultures of, that they then sequenced the genomes of. The two organisms that they were able to interpret their data with were from my genomic encyclopedia project. And that's because, of course, the Human Microbiome Project got samples from westernized populations. There were none of these in those samples. There were our cultured representatives. We sequenced these treponema genomes because they were just phylogenetically novel. But that allowed the interpretation of this metagenomic data from these samples because you had a reference that was relatively closely related to these organisms in the sample. Um, so we basically managed to convince many people that this phylogenetic approach to sequencing was useful. There's been a cyanobacterial project run at the JDI. We have a project at Davis on Halophilic archaea. There have been many other such projects. It turns out these are, I think they're great. I wouldn't say they're useless, because they're very useful. But if you actually look at the diversity of life, um, and you look at all the ribosome RNA sequences that we have from both cultured organisms and uncultured organisms, almost all of the evolutionary diversity of life is from uncultured organisms. So we're trying to characterize the genomic diversity of life by marching our way through the cultured diversity of organisms. It's like one-tenth of half a percent of the total diversity of life. And so there's a new effort at the Joint Genome Institute and now at a variety of other groups to go through uncultured lineages and sequence genomes from those branches and get reference genomes and functional information and other data from those lineages to much more broadly characterize the diversity of life. One of the projects was called the, the Dark Matter Project. Apologize to the physicists out here. Um, run by Tanya Wojtke at the JGI. We have a new collaboration with Ramunas Stefanovskis at the Bigelow Labs to do the same thing. There are many approaches whereby you can get genomes from uncultured organisms. What we're doing here is single cell genomics, flow filtering cells, running whole genome amplification, and then sequencing the genomes. Um, Jill Banfield at Berkeley has shown an alternative approach that works really well, which is she's and her group has gotten incredibly good at actually assembling genomes from random shotgun sequencing from samples. And assembling, they just had a paper with 200 new genomes from phylogenetically novel lineages assembled by ran from random shotgun sequencing. But we need many of these projects, the total diversity of life that we understand now, we probably need about 500,000 genomes 
to characterize half of the currently known phylogenetic diversity of bacteria. And every week, that currently known phylogenetic diversity of bacteria goes up. So um, I, don't, I don't know where this is going yet. We don't know where it's going to end. There's a lot of diversity out there, so we need projects like this to really fill in the diversity. We need the same approach to understanding protein family diversity. Go through all the genomes, sort them, build them into protein families, make reference data like alignments and hidden markup models and trees and motifs for those to then predict functions for the communities using any type of approach. Again, I would approve of the phylogenetic approach, but um, we need to do that. Um, I haven't really talked about particular systems much here. About half of the work in my lab is on model systems and characterizing the microbes in those model systems to try and understand the structure and function of those microbial communities. Um, we started with very simple systems, so single symbionts living inside hosts. We've actually been sequencing the genomes of those chemosynthetic symbionts with my undergraduate advisor, Colin Kavanaugh. Um, we graduated uh, in collaboration with Nancy Moran to two symbionts living inside a host. Um, it turned out to be incredibly hard to use random shotgun sequencing to interpret the community where there were just three players in the community, host and two symbionts. Uh, it's really hard to characterize a human-associated gut sample with thousands of species, but we're building up to that. And so we've been working on what I would call simpler systems where we have good genetic tools in the host or good ways to manipulate the host communities on the Drosophila microbiome, rice microbiome, corn microbiome, and basically using the power of genetics of these organisms, the power of all the tools that are available of these organisms, and then treating the microbiome as a trait, just like you would trait, treat yield, or wing shape, or leaf morphology, etc., and trying to understand the interaction between the microbial communities and the hosts by leveraging all that we understand about the hosts. And that, in turn, allows us to test our methods because we can't get the methods to work in these situations where, for example, we have rice plants growing in the exact same soil, the exact same genotype, the exact same time point sample, how are we going to characterize human population variation? And then um, another area that I think is really important, which we are just starting to get at um, in my laboratory, and a variety of other people are sort of doing similar things, is to think about the entire system. So if we think about the people in this room, I can go and collect a sample from the people in the room, characterize the microbial community in a variety of ways, and still banging my head against the wall. Because that isn't characterizing where they got their microbes from. We get our microbes from the air, from our water, from the food we eat, from our pets, from our buildings, from our mother during birth, from our family during growth. Understanding that entire ecosystem is critical for understanding the impact of microbes on particular hosts. So we need to really understand the inputs and outputs and the entire community if we think we're going to understand um, the ecosystem of microbes that live in on particular organisms. Um, one last thing I want to mention in terms of understanding these communities and the entire system is um, so what I just mentioned about people is short-term uh, interactions with people. There's also the long-term interactions. So understanding the evolutionary history and the co-evolution of hosts and their communities is really critical. That example I showed before of the treponema, the spirochete, and the hunter-gatherers is one approach that people are using. We're basically trying to do the same type of approach, look at the 
evolutionary diversity of a group of organisms, look at their microbiomes, use evolutionary deconstruction methods to infer what the ancestral character states were for the microbiomes, and then infer how the microbiomes have changed over time in these different lineages. And in turn, try and associate those changes with environmental changes or genetic changes or other types of changes that occur in those organisms. We're doing this, for example, as a grad student working on cichlids, a great model system for diversification of organisms. Um, that seems to be one of the best for looking at post-micro uh, co-evolution. Um, and then, uh, just uh, I want to end by talking about this other side of things we haven't talked about a lot, which is the public understanding. So, when we want to study the science of all these communities, and I would argue it's, it's very complicated, um, there's lots of uh, reasons why we want to engage the public. Um, one of them is this germophobia, you know, why are we putting antimicrobial compounds in every single thing on the planet? That seems to be a bad idea. Why are probiotics selling even though there's virtually no evidence that most of them work? Um, and, and so on. So we've spent a lot of time trying to work on um, what I would call outreach and education, both first to other fields, so microbial diversity. We have a project funded by the Sloan Foundation to work with building scientists to try and improve the understanding of the microbial ecology of the built environment. And to do that, we have to engage engineers and architects and building scientists and others because they're the people actually doing the work in these communities that we want to layer a microbial study onto. Um, we do a variety of other things, as you've heard. I spend a lot of time blogging. Uh, postdoc in my lab built something called the microbiome game. Uh, you can download this for free, of course, Delusional, um, and uh, um, you can please play it. It's, it's actually quite entertaining. And then the last thing I want to end with is this new area, which I think is critically important for public understanding and outreach, which is what many people call citizen science. You could also call this participatory science. And this is going beyond the practitioners. So you know, building scientists is one thing. They're thinking about the design of buildings, and you know, adding a microbial layer onto some of the work is. You know, foreign language maybe to some of them, but is, you know, probably can get them to do. What we really want to do is engage the broader public with an understanding of microbes. And the way we've been doing this is this participatory science. We ran um, what was the first meeting on citizen microbiology here at UC Davis um, a few years ago. And as part of that meeting, we invited all the people that we could find doing citizen microbiology projects around the country, around the world. Basically, there were maybe 10 of those at the time. Um, there are now probably hundreds of citizen microbiology projects that are going on uh, across the world. Here are some examples. So I'm on the, full disclosure, I'm on the Scientific Advisory Board of the Biome, which is one of these places that will allow you to send in a poop sample or a tooth scraping and get data on your microbiome back. There's a comparable project called the American Gut. There are probably 10 of these home human microbiome projects.